Father, we thank you for these words from Paul, and we ask that you would speak to us now by your Spirit. Help us to understand, and may you transform us and renew our minds. Help us to see Jesus and to follow him. Amen. Thank you, Susan, for praying for Sir David earlier. I would encourage you all, please, I don't know if you do, to pray for our political leaders, perhaps particularly this week, and not just those for whom you would vote. That's a temptation I sometimes fall in myself. It is so important that we pray for them and that we pray for truth and justice across our land. So please remember them, particularly this week. We're in week five of our series called Seeing the Sun, looking at the first four chapters of First Corinthians, although I am going to sneak in a bit of chapter 13 in a couple of weeks. Last time we were thinking about building carefully and wisely, which means building on the right foundation, that's Jesus, and with the right materials, faithfulness to scripture, to Jesus' teaching. And we see a similar pattern to that in chapter 4, which begins with Paul talking about the foundation of Christian life, which is grace and forgiveness, And then he moves on to talk about the form of the Christian life, humility and love. I wonder what you think makes a good leader. I'm a fan of most things Apple, so uh, I enjoyed reading a biography a few years ago of Steve Jobs, who was one of the founders of Apple. And in many ways, he embodied the, the, the ideal of the world when it comes to leadership. He was visionary, inspiring, creative, He was strong and direct. He was incredibly successful and by the end of his life, extremely wealthy. But he was also a bully to the point of being cruel. He reduced employees to tears on many occasions in public meetings. His refusal to accept reality led him to create some incredible products. His second most successful venture was Pixar one of the most successful film studios there's ever been. That was his second most successful business venture. But it also, his refusal to accept reality, meant that he refused the medical treatment that would have saved his life. By the world's criteria, he was wildly successful. I had a look yesterday. The market capitalization, that is the value of Apple, is currently just less than $2.4 trillion dollars. That's more than most sovereign nations. Was he a successful leader? Now, those numbers might be bigger, but the world hasn't changed much in 2,000 years since Paul was writing to the Corinthians. They judge their church leaders, including Paul, by very similar criteria. But Paul's idea of ministry was very different. First one, he says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Remember, the the mystery he's talking about is the gospel, the good news that in Jesus, God is creating a new family of all nations. That's the mystery, the mystery now revealed. See, for Paul, apostles weren't leaders. They were servants. The word he uses there is a bit weird. It means something like an under-rower, someone who follows instructions. He then talks about being a steward or a housekeeper, entrusted with what God has given to him, entrusted with something that didn't belong to him. 
The apostles weren't making stuff up here. They were passing on faithfully what God had first given to them. So to Paul's mind, apostles aren't leaders, but servants and stewards. And I think I'd want to add something from Peter's first letter, shepherds. Servants of Jesus, stewards of the gospel, and shepherds of God's people. That is a far cry from the world then or the world today in its understanding of leadership. And interestingly, Paul never once uses the word leader. And in fact, in the New Testament, the word leader only really crops up when it's talking about Jairus, the synagogue leader. Perhaps the church needs to learn a bit of a lesson from there. Paul almost always uses the word servant. See, he's, once again, as we've seen over the last few weeks, he's subverting the world's values and replacing them with God's values. He says, verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now, it's not that they don't matter to him that he doesn't care. He doesn't care because they are judging him by worldly standards. Because ultimately, he is judged by God. He answers to God, not to them, verse 4. In verse 5, he talks about how actually human judgments are a waste of time because we can't see what's hidden. We can't see the motives of another's heart. And fourth, in verse 4, he says, most importantly, my conscience is clear. He says, my conscience is clear but that does not make me innocent. Eh? How can he have a clear conscience if he's not innocent? It doesn't make any sense. The answer, because he is forgiven. Paul doesn't pretend to be perfect. And he doesn't pretend that his sin isn't really sin. That's the world's trick. Paul's conscience is clear. Not because he's done nothing wrong, but because he has been forgiven. The slate has been wiped clean by Jesus. Paul is who he is. Not because he's so amazing, although he was pretty amazing, but because in Jesus he was forgiven. So the first foundation of the Christian life is forgiveness. The second is grace. Not the prayer before a meal, but the things that God give us. I know I gave too many jokes out last week, so I've just got one for you this week. So are you ready for it? Sitting comfortably. Why is the broken drum the best present you could ever give anyone? Because you just can't beat it. Sorry. The Corinthians were boastful. They were boastful. In worldly terms, their church was a huge success. It was large. It was wealthy. It was full of people with gifts. So they had a a pretty high opinion of themselves. They were a success. And they compared themselves favorably, of course, to the other churches that were smaller, poorer, and less gifted. And they argued about which of their leaders was the most impressive Which one was the proper one to follow? Because after all, they deserved the best. The other churches can make do with the rest. Do you see how worldly their attitude was? Do you see how full of pride? I think that's what Paul was getting at in verse 6. It's kind of tricky to follow his line of thought through that verse, I have to say, to work out exactly what he means. 
But I think it's to do with pride. With them thinking they knew better than the teaching they had received. Getting puffed up. He uses that word, doesn't he? Puffed up. He uses that a lot in 1 Corinthians. Proud of themselves for getting and picking the best of the human leaders. The antidote to that bad attitude comes in verse 7. And it's, and it's a phrase, it's a question to learn. Verse 7, Paul says, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? It is a beautiful question. And it teaches us that second foundation of the Christian life. Grace. What do you have that you did not receive? I actually think that grace is one of the hardest teachings in the Bible to accept. Why? Because it's just not fair. (laughs) It goes against our sense of justice that you get what you deserve. Because deep down, we know we don't deserve it. So we feel there must be a catch. You know the phrase, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And so it makes us fish around, looking for things to do so we can earn what God's giving us. don't know if that's an attitude that's just in my heart or if you recognize that in you as well. Don't get me wrong. Grace is not cheap. Following Jesus is not easy. It involves uh, self-denial. It involves self-sacrifice. Being a disciple is costly. But being adopted into God's family is not something we can earn. It is a free gift of God's love and mercy. The forgiveness that Paul knew is costly, but Jesus has already paid that price on the cross. The Holy Spirit isn't something we can buy from John Lewis or anywhere else. It is the lavish overflowing of God's love for us in Jesus. What do you have that you did not receive? The foundation of the Christian life is forgiveness and grace. I'm going to look now at the form of the Christian life in humility and love. Now, Some of you may know the story of King Canute. Standing in the sea, trying to hold back the tide. I don't know if you've ever seen, he sort of it was in one of my children's books of legends and things. I don't know if that's the story you know. He's standing in the sea, trying to hold back the tide, with his feet, of course, completely wet. It's told as a fable about pride, except that, I discovered, actually the original fable is about humility. This is the original story. Canute the Great was king of Denmark, Norway, and England. He was a Viking. About a thousand years ago, but he was also a Christian. And as is often the case, he was surrounded by the sort of, I don't know, the yes man, the the sycophantic courtiers who would always flatter him. And he grew tired of this constant flattery. And so to put an end to it, he ordered the court down to the shore. And as he sat on his throne in the sand, Canute commanded the tide not to come in. And of course, soon the waters were lapping around his throne and around the legs of his courtiers. And then Canute turned to them and said, Let all men know how empty and worthless is the power of kings, for there is none worthy of the name but God, whom heaven, earth, and sea obey. Ironic, isn't it? The world has turned that into a fable about pride when it is an example of humility. 
Paul's sarcasm can sometimes be hard for us to read. I find it so, you know, when, when it sounds like he's being a bit mean. And to be honest, he, he's being quite sarcastic here in, in verse 8. He seems to mock them. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign. But he's trying to burst their bubble of pride and arrogance. And that's quite a hard bubble to burst. I'm not even sure bubble's the right word, because bubbles are quite easy to pop. Pride is not a good thing. Ever. Because pride is centered on me, not God. It is a worldly value to be unlearned, not indulged. To make this point even more strongly, Paul then applies it to himself and his ministry. This is his his rather unusual CV that he begins in verse 9. It seems to me, he says, that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Verse 11, to this hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, we are brutally treated, we are homeless. Verse 12, we work hard with our own hands. Verse 13, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Paul is exaggerating, but not by much. He's trying to teach the Corinthians that the Christian life takes the form of humility, not glory. Describes himself and the other apostles at this procession. It was a victory procession that the Roman generals would have through the streets of Rome. And at the very end of the procession, they would have uh, some prisoners that they'd captured alive, dragged along into the Colosseum where they would be publicly humiliated and killed. Then in verse 11, Paul describes himself and the other apostles as vagrants, dressed in rags, homeless, hungry, thirsty. He describes them as day laborers, working with their own hands on the minimum wage. He describes them as scum, garbage, those scrapings you have to scour off the inside of a toilet bowl. That's what he's trying to describe. It's not nice, is it? It's not particularly attractive. If you, if I, when, you know, when I, I, when I do a, an evangelistic talk, I don't normally lead with this. It's not very attractive, especially when you compare it with the wealth and the culture that had ensnared the Corinthians and that ensnares us today. Especially in this country. Maybe that's why the church so often has grown in places of poverty and stagnates in places of wealth. But Paul wasn't only describing himself here. Who else does that little list remind you of? Jesus. He was dragged through the streets before being publicly humiliated and killed. He was homeless. He had nowhere to lay his head. He was often hungry and thirsty. He was a a, a carpenter who worked with his hands, who who lived and, and traveled with fishermen. He was cast aside like so much garbage. By his own people. Paul didn't want the Corinthians to feel sorry for him. He wanted them to learn that following Jesus is humbling and costly. Not humbling like it's used when you hear sports people talk about humbling when they actually mean pride. It's really humbling to receive this honor, they say. No, you're feeling proud. <laughs> following Jesus is truly humbling. 
and truly costly. Listen to what Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 8. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's a bit like this. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those parties with a buffet. You've got your paper plate, and uh, you've got your beige party food on it, and uh, then you've got your glass of whatever it is in your other hand. How do you eat without first putting something down? If you don't put something down, you go hungry. And that's a little bit like what Paul is talking about here, what Jesus is talking about. The Corinthians believe the world's lie that we don't need to lay anything down because we have everything already. Jesus says, I have life. Put yours aside and receive it from me. What did you have that you did not receive? So the first form of the Christian life is humility. Might add to that thankfulness. Second is love. Now, I don't really like the way the word love is, is used and twisted and watered down today. For Paul, love is strong. This is why we're thinking about 1 Corinthians 13 in a couple of weeks. It seeks the truth. It wants the best. And the best is not in here. The best is in Jesus. Fullness of life is not found in our desires. Save when those desires are for Jesus. And that is why losing our life for him is how we find it, is how we save it. Verse 14, I am not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Sometimes when we read Paul, it sounds like he's angry. And he probably is a little bit angry, but it's because he cares. He loves them so deeply. My dear children, he says, he is desperate for them to turn away from what is damaging them. He knows that they are drifting, sometimes even running away from Jesus, from life, and towards the world and towards death. And he's desperate for them to stop and to come back. He's like any loving father who sees their child heading for danger. What do you do? Do you let them fall off the cliff? Or do you reach out your hand to grab them? That's what Paul is doing here. Friends, may we listen to this warning. The world then and the world now is pulling the church away from Jesus. It always has and it always will. Our temptation is to water down the truth in the Bible, to make it easier for people in the world to hear, to make it more worldly so it's less scandalous, to make it easier to hear. But that isn't love because love delights in the truth. So to love the world We need to be faithful to what we have received, just as Paul was. What the world needs is for God's people to be more Christian, not less. That's why Paul says in verse 16, I urge you, I urge you, I beg you, he says, to imitate him. He then says, verse 17, he sends Timothy, my son whom I love, he says, who is faithful in the Lord, so they can imitate him. So he can remind them of the way of life that Paul has in Jesus, that is what he teaches. It might sound arrogant. I'm not sure I would stand up here and say, imitate me. But 
But remember the way Paul described himself in verse 1 as a servant of Jesus. Remember his bizarre CV in verses 9 to 13. Paul wanted them to imitate him in his humility and his love. It's not because he was so great, but because Jesus was. He says, be like me. What he really means is be like Jesus. But he knows that it's easier for us to copy someone we can see with our eyes. Following Jesus means living a cross-shaped life. Because that's the sort of life Jesus led. Friends, I long for us to live faithfully. Living faithfully is the title of our talk today. I long for us to stand on the foundation of forgiveness and grace in Jesus. I long for our lives to be formed in that humility and love. I long for us to reflect Jesus not only in what we teach, but in our way of life. May we heed Paul's warnings. Let go of ourselves and our sin and take hold of the life that God has for us in Jesus and live it faithfully every day and in every way. Amen.